According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, looking at 6, 7, and 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6 begins with a therefore, and anytime you encounter a therefore, you have to stop and ask yourself what it's there for. What is uh, the reference for the therefore? Uh, what is the logic that's being built upon? And in this case, it's verses 1 through 5, and uh, really what we're dealing with in this chapter is centered on rest, on the rest that is provided for you and for me. And uh, yes, the Exodus generation blew it. And even a generation later, Joshua led them in. They did conquer. They settled. They divided the tribe. But Joshua did not provide them rest, not on the spiritual basis that we're looking at in this chapter. And so it's, I think it's important to understand, obviously, logically, what remains and why it remains and what we should be doing about it. And especially since it's available for all of us to enter into that rest. And uh, this is where we are. All right, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to clear away any carnality and to humble ourselves under uh, the hand of his guidance and under his teaching. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to receive instruction. We thank you for our Old Testament, for our New Testament, for the quotations of the Old Testament found in the New Testament. Father, where we can study to show ourselves approved, where we can search the scriptures and see if these things are so, where we can learn from the failures that have been recorded, and that, Father, where we can make the application ourselves. Thank you for being a God of grace. Thank you for not... um, for just for providing abundantly, exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. I thank you, Father, for the reality of the Christian way of life. And that uh, as we read our Bibles, we don't learn about these perfect people that never made a mistake. And uh, that we don't feel like we have to be sinless or perfect. That we're going to struggle. We're going to fall short. And yet, by your grace, Father, we confess, we're restored to fellowship, and we continue advancing in, in your plan for our life. And so, Father, use this message on this day to teach us about the rest you've provided. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. It is curious to me, as uh, speaking with a fellow last week related to the Bible, and uh, tonight we're beginning the first of, uh, I think it's, I forget how many weeks, 12 weeks or something we've got coming in Geisler Systematic Theology on Bibliology, and we're learning about what the Bible is and what it's not, and where the critics attack it, accuse it of being, and so forth. And some very hostile people, particularly hostile to Jewish people, hostile to the Hebrew Old Testament. And so they've got this theory out there that, that it was just a bunch of Jews that made up the Bible in order to uh, you know, claim uh, a divine sanction for stealing the land away from the poor Palestinian people. And it's just, a, it's just a make-believe document. The Jews made it up to justify stealing the land and killing all the all the Palestinians. Of course, not true at all, and and we can defend what the Bible is and based upon how the Bible was written. But it's curious to me, if I just, for the sake of argument, go along with that silly way of thinking, 
that this was just a book that they wrote, they made it up, it was a fraud and so forth. Well, then they were kind of morons about the book that they you know, fraudulently wrote because they included every failure. They included Abraham's failure and David's failure and all these real embarrassing stories about you know, the Exodus generation falling in the wilderness. And you would think that if, uh, if it's, it's called the apologetic of embarrassment. The fact, the, the fact is that the Bible records all of these embarrassing stories. Uh, it's like the resurrection of our Savior. Why in the world, if you're just making that up, why would you have women being the first eyewitness testimony to the, to the resurrection? That would be, in the, in the day and age that was written, that would be the last thing you would want would be the unreliable testimony of women, you know, and uh, what we were studying related to that. The apologetic of embarrassment is, uh, is interesting in that regard. So as we turn to Hebrews 4 and we see it here, we see the story of that Exodus generation. They failed. They failed to enter into rest. They failed. They fell in the wilderness. And, uh, and we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And so really to summarize these five verses that lead up to verse 6, it really comes down to that. That, uh, that uh, as we spot it in verse 2, they had good news preached to them, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so the, the Word of God is alive and powerful. The Word of God is God-breathed and profitable. But if you don't accept it on a faith basis to unite it with faith, then it does not profit you in any respect. And you can listen to the best preacher that ever walked this earth. And Jesus had all kinds of people that listened to Him and then walked out ignoring Him. They weren't responding by faith to what Jesus was teaching. And, uh, or Moses, or anyone. And so we see this. So then we have the, the statement that's made in verse 3 that we're going to build upon this morning. We who believe enter that rest, just as he has said. So they didn't. They fell short. That whole generation died in the wilderness and did not enter into rest. But what do we get to do? We enter into rest. And I stressed uh, a week ago and the week before that, we were talking about the aorist participle and got a little grammatical on it. But nevertheless, when we apply faith, when we unite the Word of God by faith, every time, every time we do, not just that one moment when we got saved. Do you remember the day you got saved? That's great. Don't forget that day. But this, the, the message of this chapter is not about the day you got saved. What we talk about when you re- reply by faith, when you respond by faith to every testing circumstance, to every occasion in which you've got the opportunity to walk by faith or to walk by sight. When you walk by faith, having believed, you are entering into rest. That is a present blessing for us today. And so we who have believed, and that's just, and just pencil in there, every time we do, every time we do, Every time we believe, every time we claim a promise, every time you know we're standing on the promises of God, it's a great hymn. Every time I take my stand on the promises of God, I'm going to walk by faith. And when we do that, every time, we are entering into rest. Presently, we presently enter into rest. So it's an aorist participle on believe, and it's a present tense on entering into. And so today we're going to talk about more of this detail about entering into rest, because that's our provision. Uh, Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them 
failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, notice that? He didn't give them rest. But if he did, if he had given them rest, he would not, he, that's the Lord, would not have spoken of another day after that. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In the Old Testament, of course, the people of God was Israel and believing Israel specifically. For us today, the people of God is us, the church, the bride of Christ. And so we'll talk about some of those issues as well. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So many of these verses, the the thrill of this chapter is the present tense or even the past tense, the recognition of the one who has himself entered into his rest, has himself also rested. That's spoken of as a past completed event. We are presently entering rest and having done so, where are we? Having done so, uh, what is our our viewpoint? What is our blessing on the basis of being in there? Okay, You ever get into a place and you thought you'd never get in there and then you got in there and then you wondered, well, why am I here? Okay, you walked into a room to get something and you got in there and you thought, now why did I come into this room? All right, well, when we enter into rest, once we get into that rest, now what? Now that we're here, what do we do? Now that we're here, okay, and we watch the Father do His work, and there's going to be a a neat tandem here when we we link this with our other study in Philippians chapter 2, because it's the Father who's at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. And that's going to be applied marvelously well when we stop doing our own works. We're going to rest from our own works as God did from His. And uh, huge uh, secret there in verse 10. All right, so let me just zip ahead here. I failed to write down the slide number, so I'll just do it manually and see where we are. Let's do that one. We looked at this one last week also. Uh, Let me get past that one. We have all this back and forth. I mean, we, we we don't know whether we're in Hebrews or whether we're in Psalm 95 or whether we're in Genesis 2 or whether we're in Exodus or Deuteronomy or where are we? Because the author of Hebrews is blending these things. The author of Hebrews is blending, putting together a tandem of Genesis 2 with Psalm 95. And he's pointing to the Exodus generation in Deuteronomy and how they failed. And so we've got a full spectrum there, and I think that's important. Uh, that tandem of Genesis and Psalms is critical in avoiding a mistaken fixation on the Exodus generation. And if we get fixated in the Exodus generation, uh, it lends itself to misapplication by the church. We start to, uh, we start to think of the church in a corporate sense that Israel was designed to be in a corporate sense, as an earthly people, uh, with conquering our enemies. We're not here to conquer. All right, and we're not here to uh, to put an end to those to those sinners. We're here to preach the gospel to those sinners, and we are a called out people, a heavenly people, and we're not called to conquer as Israel was called to conquer. Anyway, there's other contrast there as well. Let's look at verses six and seven now. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, we're going from a corporate mode now to an individual mode. Since it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. 
and you almost have to finish the, the threat there, right? Like sometimes we, we like to give an or else message and then we never really finish the or else message. There's kind of an or else that goes with verse 6 that says, don't you disobey also. Don't you dare disobey also. And then he moves on into verse 7 but without kind of finishing the thought of that threat to say he again fixes a certain day today saying through David, after so long a time, after so long a time, okay? Do you ever feel like so much time has gone by that God's forgotten what He's doing? (laughs) you ever feel like you said, uh, you know, the coming of the Lord is near, be patient, like the farmer in, in the book of James 5, he says, be patient for the coming of the Lord is near. And then you scratch your head and say, but that was 2,000 years ago. How near is it? Okay? And maybe... He's forgotten, or maybe he blew it. Maybe he intended to do it, but now he's switching. No, don't mock. Don't mock. The scoffers come in the last days and say, where is the promise of his coming? It's still in force. It's still, it's still coming, and it could be today. So it remains. It remains. We talk about things that you left behind, things that you forgot, the cell phone you left at the house, whatever it is that you left behind. And this is the, this is the language that we have. You remember Paul left a cloak in 2 Timothy 4.13? He also left Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20. He also left Titus in Crete, Titus 1.5. While Paul left a cloak, Trophimus and Titus in various places, God left a remnant to enter his rest. And that's by design. That's not an accident. Sometimes you leave things on accident. Sometimes you leave things on design. My wife and I do that. Sharon prepositions reading glasses in various rooms of the house, in various cars, in various places. I do the same thing with Bibles. I have a Bible in my pulpit. I have a Bible in my car. I have a Bible in my study. I just try to put Bibles or prepositioned Bibles in different places where I think I might be. All right. Well, think about what God left behind a remnant. And sometimes when humans are doing it, I don't think Paul meant to leave his cloak. But he did, whether he meant to or not. Trophimus, he intended to leave there because he was sick. Sometimes you leave somebody for reasons that are out of your control and you're not really happy about it, but what else can you do? I'm sure he would have loved to have taken Trophimus with him, but he was sick, so he left him there. Titus, likewise, left him there. I think he left him there for good reasons because he needed a tough guy to whip those Cretans into shape, okay? And so you can leave people and things and, and so forth for different reasons Um, But when God does it, is God a slave to his circumstances? Is God just trapped by, oh, well, okay, they let me down. I really wanted to bring them into the promised land, but they wouldn't do it. God is not ensnared by circumstances. His omniscience has this all planned out. He knows every what if. He knows every contingency. And so when he chooses to leave a remnant, he's got a plan. He's bringing that plan about. It's by design. And in this case, it's curious because he's leaving a remnant to enter rest and he is switching from the corporate model to the individual model that individual believers in any generation can faith rest in spiritual terms. You and I can faith rest today. David could faith rest in his day. Any generation can faith rest by standing on the promises of God. Now, does that mean he's throwing away his corporate plan? No. For Israel, that, that future still remains. For Israel, they will have, they will enter into the land and they will enter into the land in faith. 
It's called Armageddon. It's called the second advent of Jesus Christ. He will gather together all of Israel from the four corners of the earth. And they're going to march in. They're going to start with a, they're going to have a wilderness judgment in Ezekiel 20. Then they're going to walk that holy highway right up into Jerusalem itself. And uh, these promises are coming. He, they will corporately enter by faith. But for now, we're switching to an individual basis. So God left a remnant to enter His rest, even when the nation as a whole failed to do so. And we got these promises. I do enjoy Second Peter chapter 2, verses 5-9. through 9. When the nation as a whole fails, there are still individuals, there's still a remnant. Second Peter chapter 2, you know, in, in the Exodus generation, it was Caleb and Joshua. They were the remnant. They got to enter into the land. In, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was Lot, right? Lot was rescued. There's other examples. Second Peter 2, verse 4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... Who did he rescue in that episode? This verse doesn't say, but there's, a, there's an indicator there. Verse 5, And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he destroyed the world, but he saved a remnant. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued a righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Lot was a believer. He's called righteous lot in this verse. And yet he he needed rescuing. He was uh, oppressed. Not oppressed enough to get out of town. Not uh, oppressed and, you know, you're looking around seeing the sin all around you. When do you finally decide that's, I, I got to get out of here? Well, the Lord got him out of there because Abraham prayed. Anyways, righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The point being, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So God knows what he's doing. God's got a plan and God knows what he's doing and he can preserve a remnant. And if he has offered rest physically and spiritually to the corporate nation of Israel and the corporate nation of Israel rejects that rest, he is still able to offer rest personally, individually, spiritually to any believer that wants to walk by faith and claim the promises and enjoy the faith rest life that God's designed for for all believers. That's the issue. And what we're teaching too, by the way, with respect to the offer of rest and to the offer, uh, the corporate offer that is then rejected, we have a parallel doctrine, I believe, that we can teach with respect to the kingdom. Because the kingdom has been offered and the kingdom has been rejected again and again and again. Up to and including the first advent of Jesus Christ. The kingdom was offered. And John the Baptist, the herald, announced the kingdom and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And said, here's your king. And they rejected the kingdom. They crucified their Christ. So what remains then for the individuals, for the individual Jewish believers, for those who did receive him, right? He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name.
And so these are principles, these are concepts that are throughout Scripture, that are in a variety of passages, in a variety of places. We shouldn't be surprised to see them here in Hebrews, that the national rejection of rest does not hinder individuals from applying faith. Even if the nation as a whole does not apply faith or unite the promises with faith, individuals within the nation certainly do, certainly can. All right. And so this is what we see with respect to, uh, to this. Now, after so long a time, after so long a time, is 400 years really that long between Moses and, and, uh, and David? Remember Moses, the Exodus in about 1440 B.C., 1446 B.C., or whatever, whatever date you like to use for your Exodus uh, in your Old Testament chronology. Um, and then King David, about 1,000 B.C., ballpark for David and Solomon. Okay? Um, after so long a time, God graciously offers a kingdom of rest to Israel under David's throne. And this is the point. David wrote Psalm 95 400 years after Joshua failed to give them rest. And yet he said, today, if you would hear his voice. David in Psalm 95 was presenting this promise that believers in his day and age need to accept the promises of God and walk by faith. To not harden their hearts, to live the word of God. And so it's curious to me when we see this, after so long a time, God graciously offers a kingdom of rest to Israel under David's throne. And you look at this in 2 Samuel 7. Let's join me there. 2 Samuel 7. And of course you can spend hours and hours. You can, there's whole seminary courses that are devoted to the uh, Old Testament covenants. But here's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And it's interesting, how much more information gets added at each stage when Moses was, you know, the theocracy under Moses was, was one thing and then the people demanded a king and God gave them first of all Saul and then David, a king after his own heart. And in David's day, this covenant is pronounced. This kingdom is offered. Rest is provided. David writes Psalm 95 imploring the Jewish people, today if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Sadly, the kingdom was not inaugurated in David's day, just as it was not inaugurated in Moses' day or Joshua's day or Jesus' day, even though it was offered each step of the way. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we've got the, uh, the early verses here where David's looking around and he sees the terrible condition that the tabernacle has fallen into uh, he's embarrassed to live in such a nice place himself as a king's palace, and yet uh, the tabernacle is in this ratty, uh, falling apart uh, tent curtains there. And Nathan thinks it's a great idea. Nathan in verse 3 says, great idea, David. Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord God is with you. If you get an idea and it seems like a great thing, then hey, serve the Lord. Be happy. Until the Lord makes it clear, wait a minute, Put the brakes on that. Good idea, but it's still a generation too soon. Your son Solomon's going to do this, not you. And so David puts the brakes on it, and he doesn't do it. And this is the context then in verse 8. Now therefore, this you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. 
I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now this is a covenant promise. And yet today, take a, take a world history course in, in university today, who are the great kings of world history? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not aware of a college course that lists David as a great king of world history. Typically they present him as a mythological character that probably didn't really exist, but was just invented or made up. The Jews think he really exists, but no one else really thinks he did. See, But Alexander gets the great, right? How many others get the great or the conqueror or, you know, whatever. You get these appellations that attach to the end of your name. David's going to have a marvelous name. He's going to have a name above all other names, I believe, except Jesus Christ. I believe King David will be the, uh, the number one prince of all the princes that will serve in the millennial kingdom. So, um, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. The Jewish people are craving for peace in part because God has promised them peace. God has promised them that they will have peace even though surrounded by their enemies. The problem is they, they try to create it themselves. They try to come to their own agreements. They try to create their own peace. They're not looking for the Prince of Peace. They crucified Him. Anyway, they have a promise. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Remember those judges? Okay. Why did you have those judges? Boy, those were the days. Okay. The, the whole cycle of the judges. Wickedness and repentance and wickedness and repentance and wickedness and repentance and up and down and up and down and up and down. There was no rest through the time of the judges. Moses didn't give them rest. Joshua didn't give them rest. The judges didn't give them rest. Not long-term lasting rest. Here's the kings. And now that uh, he's going to make this covenant with King David, he says, I will give you rest. All right. So the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And so here's these promises, and David can embrace these promises, and there's rest. Is it going to come through David? Is it going to come in David's generation? He might start to think so, and he might write Psalm 95 with a recognition that, look, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the, in the wilderness. Today, if you would hear his voice, as David writes Psalm 95, what was David's expectation? This could be the kingdom today if the people will just listen. And yet, they won't listen. So when your days are complete, this is verse uh, 12 now. I was going to stop with verse 11, but verse 12 and following makes it clear there's going to be a Solomon after David. There's going to be a string of sons after Solomon. There's going to be a line of David that's going to produce a greater David. That's going to produce the greater son of David. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of this. And he's the one that's going to bring this rest. And so after so long a time, I think it's, it's neat on God's part that the Holy Spirit through David inspires Psalm 95. That the Holy Spirit through David says today, today if you would hear his voice. And so forget about 
400 years ago, forget about 2,000 years ago, forget about all these previous failures, forget about your own previous failures. Today, if you would hear His voice, today, get in fellowship today, be under teaching today, walk by faith today, whatever your Christian walk has been like prior to today. Good, bad, or otherwise. Forget about it. Just take today and move forward. So 400 years from Moses to David, 1,000 years from David to Christ, 2,000 years from Jesus till now, 2,000 plus years from Jesus' first advent to his second advent. I think I'm right about that. Is this 2018 still? Okay. I'm losing track. And yet... What's coming up? What's coming up? And it's curious to me. Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, and we see the plan of God. Is God's plan thwarted? Is God, um, does God get frustrated with these pesky humans? I believe Satan is. I think Satan gets frustrated left and right. I think Satan... When he, he's got this glorious satanic plan that he thinks is comparable to the Father's plan, and, and Satan just gets befuddled left and right by human volition. All of the variables and all of the unexpected things, and who would have thought that? And, and Satan is just, I, I think, and, and it, it doesn't stop. When he puts his great hero out there as this huge man of peace in the tribulation, riding on the white horse and posing as Christ, and here we have uh, you know, peace in our day. And uh, human volition steps in and, and uh, we find a kingdom divided against itself. And we find that the tribulation, that we have the greatest war ever launched in the history of war right there in the tribulation. And Satan can't handle human volition, but God can. And I love that. And so uh, in Matthew uh, 23, verses 37 through 39, we have this statement here. Jesus, on the verge of going to the cross... Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Okay, He's preaching against the city here that he is about to crucify him. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. It's a beautiful hymn. I love singing under his wings. You know, we really need to write a version about under his wings Every time he wants to gather us under there and these pesky humans say, no thanks, we keep rebelling. And you were unwilling. Now how often was that? Seems to me like it's more often than just the first advent. It's more often than just the present time that Jesus is speaking about. That he's thinking back to such as when he said before Abraham was born, I am. Such as when he talks about Uh, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, such as other visions when Jesus was spanning the history of Israel in his teaching. How often? In Moses' day, he wanted to bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and they were unwilling. In Joshua's day, he did bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and they were still unwilling. Joshua did not give them the rest that that the Lord designed them for. Sure, they conquered, but they didn't rest. And uh, in David's day, was there another attempt to issue the kingdom in David's day? I believe so. You see that in the Psalms. How many times then was the kingdom offered, was the kingdom offered, was the kingdom offered? How often I desired. 
And so we have kind of a neat picture here. This is what Israel will be like in the millennium. They will be like uh, chicks under the wings of Yahweh. They're the one faithful nation when Gog Magog marches against Jesus at the end of Revelation chapter 20. The one faithful nation is going to be the Jewish nation under the wings of the Lord. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What does that mean? This doesn't mean replacement theology. This doesn't mean that God scraps His plan for Israel. It doesn't mean that He's done with the Jewish people. It just means that there's going to be a delay. All right then. We're going to delay. And He knew it ahead of time. Of course, He knew before the foundation of the world. There's going to be a delay. Here we go again. And have you noticed each time there's a delay, it gets longer and longer and longer? From 400 years to 1,000 years to 2,000 years. All right. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until... Aha! I love that. There's an until there. Notice that? Desolate is not eternal. He is not scrapping His covenant promises. Desolate is only for the time being. There's a partial hardening of Israel for the time being. Until... And yet, even at the present time, there remains what? A remnant according to God's gracious choice. Until. From now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to do this generationally. They have to do this corporately. It's not just a remnant that can get saved. It's not just an individual Jewish person here or there that sees the Messiah, believes in Jesus Christ, and receives eternal life. It must be the corporate nation of Israel. The Jewish nation, including their leaders, their religious leaders. It's going to take tribulation to do it. Until Antichrist betrays his treaty and unleashes Armageddon on the Jewish people. That's what it's going to take for the Jewish nation, for Israel, to look upon him whom they have pierced. They will call upon the name of the Lord so as to be saved. And when they do that, when they do that corporately, when the nation claims, um, it's Psalm 118 here, okay? Psalm 118. They have to claim that as a nation. They have to call out Hosanna, Lord save. Here we are on commonly referred to as Palm Sunday, (laughs) okay? Okay. I personally, I, I hold a Palm Monday in, in my chronology, but that's, that's fine. Uh, the, the day of his triumphal entry, the Jewish nation was not singing Hosanna. It was only the children singing Hosanna, like we had the children singing this morning. What a thrill. And the children were singing Hosanna, and all the legalists and all the arrogant, prideful PhDs were saying, tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, are you kidding me? They can't. And if they did, the rocks would start singing. This is prophecy being fulfilled. This is Jesus humbly riding on a colt, entering into Jerusalem. Nisan 10, four days later, he'll be crucified on Nisan 14. Okay, The Passover lamb is selected on the 10th and slaughtered on the 14th. Anyway, as a nation, they have to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until they do, Jesus Christ can't come back second advent. But when they do, and when he does, then all of these promises of peace, all of these promises, they will nationally enter into rest at that point of time. 
that is going to happen. Now, verse 8. Verse 8 has an if. Hebrews 4, 8. For if Joshua had given them rest. All right? If Joshua had given them rest. And we're going to spend some time on this because it seems like Joshua did give them rest. And, you, and, and I can, you know, there's somebody that wants to raise their hand and say, oh, but, 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 right? They want to be like uh, that, that guy in Welcome Back Cotter that's raising his hand and, and uh, you know who I'm talking about. And, uh, and, and he's saying, ooh, 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 and, he, and he's got the answer, right? Joshua did give them rest. Moses didn't, but Joshua did. They crossed the Jordan. They conquered Jericho. They conquered Ai. Oh, second time. They conquered the other cities. They divided up the land. They settled in the land. Joshua gave them rest. And I can show you a verse in Joshua that says he gave them rest. Well, he gave them a rest. But did he give them God's rest? Because the, the thing is, the promise, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So the rest Joshua gave them, was that God the Father's rest from Genesis 2-7? Was that the, de- the, the rest from, from, uh, from day 7? God's rest? Or was it just a, a political rest? Was it an economic rest? Was it a military rest? What kind of rest was it? What kind of rest are we looking for? So verse 8 says, if Joshua had given them rest, and the language there says he didn't. This is called a counterfactual. This is with an if, but it's not true. But if it had been true, then this would have been, this would have been the case. If. If I hadn't become a pastor, I would have become a homicide investigator. Maybe. That was my goal. Okay? My dream. If I hadn't, uh, you know, you think about the, the shouldas, wouldas, and couldas. If I hadn't done this, if I hadn't done that. If I hadn't gotten those terrible grades at the university, I wouldn't have gone into the army. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And if I hadn't, well, what, what produced those grades? Those grades were produced by something else that if I hadn't have done. Okay? If I hadn't, if I hadn't, if I hadn't. Okay? And I'm not the only one. We all have these. Okay? And I don't need, this is not confession hour. <laughs> all right? We just, that's all... The blood of Christ. Praise God. Now, when the Bible presents these, though, we learn. We learn some amazing things about God and His omniscience. We learn some amazing things about the plan of God because He knows every shoulda, woulda, and coulda. He knows every alternative. He knows every timeline. He knows every alternative timeline. He knows every what if. We think we know, but we don't know. You know? All right. Now, Joshua did lead Israel to conquest and settlement. That is true. Joshua led Israel to conquest and settlement, but he did not lead the nation to a faith rest acceptance of God's will. When we read Joshua 21, when we read Joshua 23, when we read Joshua 24, there's a lot of reading that goes into this, but when you read these selections, it's clear. They had a rest of a sort. They had a sort of a rest. A kind of a rest. Alright? And so we, it's legitimate to ask ourselves, well, what do you mean by rest? Right? Like, who's my neighbor? We want to know, well, wait a minute. Because 
Joshua says he gave him rest. Hebrews says he didn't give him rest, which is why David spoke of another rest 400 years after that. So how does this work? How are they both true? Say, well, they can't both be true, so I'm going to pick the one I like. Danger. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that with any passage of Scripture. If you observe what you think is a contradiction or what you think is a conundrum, great. Embrace them. They're both true. And don't for a minute say, well, I like this verse. I don't like that verse. So this one's true. That one's not true. God is not a liar. Every verse is true. And so when Hebrews says Joshua didn't give them rest, that's true. Joshua did not give them rest. When Joshua in his own book said he gave them rest, he did. That also is true. But now we start to ask ourselves, what kind of rest are we talking about? And what kind of rest was promised? And what might they have had better than what they did have? A faith rest acceptance of God's will. So, uh, Joshua, chapter 21. Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua, there we go, 21. And uh, they're distributing the land, they're appointing Levitical cities, they're um, adjusting to a uh, post-military civilian kind of way of life. And... um, So verse 43, so the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers and they possessed it and they lived in it. Great. Thanks God. And the Lord gave them rest. See, told you. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and no one of all their enemies stood before them The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. All came to pass. Well, then there you go. That seems pretty clear. Well, then why does Hebrews 2.8 say what Hebrews 2.8 says when it says that Joshua did not give them rest? Not of the kind of rest that Hebrews is talking about. That's the point. They had political rest, sure. They had military rest, sure. They had, God had fulfilled all of these earthly promises, yes. But what did they not unite by faith? What did they not accept by faith? And why did they leave the conquest so incomplete? Why did they have Canaanites still living amongst them? They didn't have any, they, you know, they had successfully had peace with their neighboring enemies. They had subjugated but not killed They still had Canaanites in their midst. And Joshua and Judges uh, are both going to make that very clear as well. There's other issues here in chapter 22, including some disobedience, including uh, some sin. Uh, We get into chapter 23. It came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. And Joshua was old, advanced in years that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers and said to them, I am old, advanced in years. (laughs) All right? Nothing wrong with that. If it is what it is, then own it. 
Okay? Celebrate it. Embrace it. He knows. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your trust. Now why do they remain? With all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. The Lord your God, He will thrust them out from before you. See, there's still work to be done. There was an incomplete fulfillment. There was disobedience on their part. And so although He did give them rest, it was not the total rest they could have had, and the spiritual dimension was clearly not there. The spiritual dimension was not there at all. They were happy to plunder. They were happy to kill. They were happy to obtain food they didn't plant and crops they didn't plant. They were happy to to inhabit cities they didn't build. But the spiritual dynamic of serving God didn't have it. And I think this is why Joshua delivers the choose you this day message. It starts in chapter 23. It carries over into chapter 24. This is his I'm old and going away message and you guys need to decide who you're going to serve. Why is it still open for debate? Why is it still an open question? Because they weren't already serving the Lord. They still had this, like, like many Christians do, they still have this divided, sit-on-the-fence kind of approach. You want to be a little bit spiritual, a little bit worldly. They want to, you know, serve God and serve idols, serve mammon, serve their career, whatever the case may be. And so this, this choose-you-this-day message, when you get to it in 24.15, I'm skimming a lot here because we're going from 22 to 23 to 24 and now to 24.15. Just read these chapters sometime. See how spiritually minded these people were. Not. Okay. Verse 14 says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river. And What are they doing with these idols still? You know they carried these dumb things through the Red Sea on dry ground? They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Their parents did. They brought them to the, to the land. The parents all died. A generation later, they still have them. You ever find stuff and your parents, you know, when they die and you're looking through my mother's old cedar chest or whatever and you find, oh, look at that. (laughs) If you find a household idol that should have been left in Egypt and wasn't left in Egypt, and okay, not on you, you were under 20 and you're not a part of that generation of judgment, but you do eventually come into possession of this thing at some point. Why are you keeping it? What are you doing with that? Can you get rid of that yet? And then you still have it in your possession when you cross the River Jordan, when you attack Jericho. You're marching around Jericho seven times, actually 13 times total, but you know, you're doing all those hikes around Jericho. You're carrying these idols with you. What do you think you're doing? Joshua did not give them rest. Not the spiritual rest that Hebrews is talking about. Or they would have been wholeheartedly serving the Lord and have no idolatry left. So if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, and there it is, we will serve the Lord. The thing about uh, uh, idolatry is it's pretty uh, self-serving. It, you just, it's like golden corral. Just pick out what you want. Okay, uh, You know, in, in idolatry, you get a God of your image, a God of your choice, a God that you want based on, you know, what, what tweaks your, your sin nature. You know, what is it that, that you enjoy? There's a God for that. <laughs> okay? As opposed to, of course, the one true God, the one who chooses us, the one who sent His Son to die for us. Big difference. So the gods of your fathers beyond the river... I think that was back in the pre-Abrahamic days. Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, the, the Canaanite gods here that they just finished conquering. Or even the Egyptian gods that they brought those idols with them out of Egypt. So they got a spectrum here of any kind of uh, pantheon, Babylonian, Egyptian, Canaanite, whatever. And isn't that curious? Choose you for this day. It leaves matters for personal acceptance or personal rejection. Choose you this day. It's an invitation. Be an idol worshiper if you want to be an idol worshiper. Go serve the moon god. Isn't that amazing? Muslims today are serving the moon god. Allah was the moon god in Mecca. They're serving the moon god. Yet they claim to be Abrahamic. Duh, Abraham left the moon god. He left Ur of the Chaldees, center of moon god worship, came to worship Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. You know, Jesus is going to restate this very bluntly when he closes the canon of Scripture in Revelation twenty-two eleven. Jesus says this bluntly, and this is a verse that some people don't like. Just like they don't like choose you this day. Oh yeah, they like that we will serve the Lord part, but the first part of that verse says, be a demon worshiper. If you want to be a demon worshiper, go do it. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Go serve Molech. Do what you want to do. Joshua says, as far as I'm concerned, though, my household is serving the Lord. Revelation 22, 11. Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Well, how near is it? Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Does that have an impact? You know, it's it's curious to me because what are we called to be? Children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're to be the holy. We're to be the righteous. And, And we're not forcing that other side to, you know, follow our morality or, or try to fake it or be us. We give the gospel. We preach the gospel. Anyway, it is interesting to me. We're going to have to come back to this next week because the counterfactuals, I just don't have time today. These counterfactuals are an important element in God's omniscient essence and God's sovereign plan. These what ifs. If, uh, if, if Joshua would have, then, then David wouldn't have. Okay? Specifically, if Joshua would have, the Lord would not have. Because it's the Lord who spoke of another day after that. If Joshua had, the Lord would not have. We would not have Psalm 95 in our Bibles. There would have been a different outcome had Joshua brought the theocracy 
into place on a positive volition basis, if they would have entered into the, the rest that God designed, we would not have had Psalm 95 like we have it now. We would not have had, think about everything else that follows. All right, so um, and it's just two, I can't give it to you in three minutes, so we'll come back to this and talk about these counterfactuals because this is God speaking. This is Scripture speaking. We don't always know. We, we say, right, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if uh, when I proposed, if Sharon had said no instead of yes, that's not even a pleasant thought. If, uh, most of these are unthinkable at this point because you look back and you see so much grace and so much mercy and, and God is just so faithful in all he does. But we don't know. Would I have become a homicide investigator? That's what I wanted to do, but who says I would have? Right? Just because I wanted to didn't mean it would have happened. And, and, but when God says it would have happened, then we know for a fact it would have happened. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have remained until the first century A.D. Jesus said that. If the miracles had been done that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have remained to this day. Jesus uttered those words in 33 A.D. Wow. Such a revival would have been sparked in, when was, when was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Ballpark, 2000 B.C.? Plus or minus a couple hundred years. I, I, I'm, I'm earlier on Abraham than some people, but that's fine. 1800 for some people BC, 2200 for other people BC. It's, it's in a range. 2000 BC plus or minus a couple hundred years. Okay? <laughs> Nearly 2000 years, Sodom and Gomorrah would still be around in Jesus' lifetime. That's a powerful what if. And it's factual. Because God's sovereignty knows it. So we'll pick up on this, uh, Lord willing, in rapture painting. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for your handle on the truth that, Father, you've got a plan from Alpha to Omega, from generation to generation. In Moses' day, in Joshua's day, in David's day, in Jesus' day, in our day. And Father, uh, for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. You've got a plan for, between Alpha and Omega, and we just thank you for the, the grace and the blessing of being a part of it. And I thank you, Father, that we get to enter into your rest all day, every day, that we get to claim the promises, stand on the promises. We get to unite your word with faith anytime we choose to, Father. Thank you for positive volition. Thank you for hunger. I pray that you would be at work in the members of this flock, Father, to increase our appetite, to increase our capacity. If, uh, if we're making do with, uh, with uh, 500 calories, give us 1,000. Give us 2,000. Give us 5,000 calories, Father. Spiritual calories in the Lord, in the Word of God. Let us feast and then let us live it out by faith. Let us live it out day by day, Father. And uh, thank you that we can learn the Word and we can live it out. And as we do, Father, we who have believed presently enter that rest. Might we enter that rest today and every day. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is our closing Sunday.